0: Okay, here we go. Session three of embodiment education. Again, my vocal cords are a little bit strained. Um, Prescribed burns up here in Bend and tis the season. So bear with me. Um, The power of pain. This is perhaps the session I'm most excited about because one of the things I've seen with 15 years of teaching movement Is that most of us need more education about how to engage with sensation and signals in the body. And all too often, culturally, we tend to get signals and information from the body. And if we don't like it or it's inconvenient, we tend to just stuff it or push it aside or run from it. And I think that the great gift of yoga asana is awareness and alignment, being able to use the time on the mat to re-pattern, reprogram, retrain your relationship and your conversation with your body. Um, and that relationship requires that we're able to listen to the signals coming from the body and respond respectfully, not aggressively, not, um, you know, trying to push it to the side, but really like compassionately and gently and lovingly learn to communicate with our bodies. So this session, the practice will be a little bit different. Um, And again, it's not a topic I think you're drawn to, which is why it's at the end. Um, But I think it's one of the most important pieces of information we can have as movement practitioners, and I would even say as human humans, right? People living in a human body. Um, So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Trina. And she's going to do a little recap on some of the conversation about muscle building,
1: and then we'll dive into the power of pain. Mm -hmm. Hi, guys. So um, thank you so much, Allison. Thank you, Conda. Thank you, everybody, for um, having me here. Again, my name is Trina Mann. I am an orthopedic specialist in physical therapy. Let me go ahead and share my screen. I'm also a master lover of apparently... Um, slides. I had no idea about this about myself until recently. Um I love a slideshow for some reason, so my apologies. So, um, must so strengthening. So I wanted to respond to um to a question from today and last time. So, um, when we are strengthening, in order to strengthen, there's a really thoughtful, it's so simple. As soon as I say it, you guys are going to go, of course. But for some reason, no, I never heard this laid out. I came to this on my own, but biomechanics and the physics of movement and, and muscle control lays movement progression out this way. So you go from a non-weight bearing exercise, which is isometric, right? That is the easiest, easiest phase one version of an activity you could do. And then from that, you start to progress towards weight bearing So you might go through phases where you start working instead of just isometrically, you work against maybe the resistance of your leg, right? This is what we do in practical strength. This is how my practical strength courses are made. And this is why I think this, this information is so powerful because you come again and again to like, really what level am I at? Is it too hard for me to do non-weight bearing, you know, moving my leg? If it is, then you better stay at the place where you're non-weight bearing and isometric, right? A lot of us are working out way too hard. If we're doing strength training at all, we're doing it way too hard a level. And a lot of trainers start, NPTs, we start at way too hard a level for people. We assume that they have all these basics because they're functioning outside in the world at a certain level, but they're functioning outside in the world at a certain level that is propagating dysfunction. So you start non-weight-bearing, you gently progress to weight-bearing. You start isometric, meaning not moving. You slowly progress to moving. You start without resistance, you slowly progress towards resistance. Weight-bearing exercises are on that spectrum. If you think about what it requires for us to walk well, we have to use our muscles and our glutes to stabilize our whole body weight on one leg. That is an extremely difficult activity level. That is like, I call it like a phase six, running's like a phase eight. Um, And in mindset and movements in our practical strength courses, we learn to start at a level one and test to see where you're at on your way up. Because what's happening is that people, again, either aren't doing the basics and they're not understanding where their strength truly is. And they're doing stuff that is way too hard. So that is um, probably in a nutshell, that answer to the question, is weight-bearing enough? It's enough if you don't want to run. If you want to run, you better get into the place where you are in flight phase. If you want to build bone and muscle, I would say weight-bearing is probably not enough. You, you have to consciously start to load at some point. And loading is done either through weight or it's done through flight phases of movement. So um, I had to put this slide up here because this is where you can find more information on that. I have a wealth of blog posts about that. You can come join us for the month. You can come join us for the weekly workshops. Come to our website. Come check out more information on the science of movement. Um, The other thing I wanted to say really quickly, somebody asked, you know, I'm 60 or I'm in my 50s or I'm in my 70s. Can I still grow muscle? emphatically, yes, you guys might've missed it. But last time in our presentation on Wednesday, we had that beautiful picture of that woman deadlifting, you know, more than her body weight. And she was in her seventies, that article she's in her seventies, she's 72. She didn't start till her late sixties after she'd had several compression fractures and an osteoporosis diagnosis. So it's not too late for us. You guys, it's not, uh, we can build muscle but it's hard. (laughs) It's hard. And it requires that we work at the right level and we work consciously um, and safely because if we re-injure ourselves, that sets us back to square one. And this is not really about injury today, but this is kind of more of a conversation about pain. So I'm going to flow right from muscle into pain. And um, this is probably my favorite uh, topic to educate on. Uh, And Also, I am one of very few physical therapists that has done a lot of education in the neuroscience of pain through this wonderful organization. I have it in my reference slides called the Neuro Orthopedic Institute. Later this year, I'm actually doing um, a year-long training with them on uh, developing a specialized pain certificate. So I'm really excited about that. So here we go. (laughs) Maybe we'll come back if I learn more in a year. Um, This this is what we're going to look at today. And this is a great primer for starting to talk about pain. So first, we're going to look at the fact that pain is actually a biopsychosocial condition. It's not just a a biologic condition. And we're going to look at the role that pain has in our lives. And um, I'd like to talk about how pain sort of creates these changes centrally centrally in our nervous system and also peripherally in our nervous system. And it creates changes at the level of the brain, the spinal cord, uh, the sensory system, the muscles, the tendons. It can create inflammation in and of itself. It's pretty amazing. Um, And this is because, again, our tissues are bioplastic. And then we're really going to get a chance to talk about and do some soothing practices um, together as a group, which I do in the clinic with everybody they identify to have some form of chronic or neuropathic pain. And I'll, I'll explain what chronic pain is. Oops, sorry, my computer doesn't like that system today. So first, I just want to say this all pain is real. So even though we're going to be talking about pain as being an experience of the nervous system, it's really important to acknowledge all pain is real. All pain is subjective. Um, We really need to be respectful of of our pain, of others' pains. It doesn't mean just because something exists in the spinal cord or in the level of the neurons doesn't mean that pain is not real. It very much is real for everybody. So, um, and everyone's pain is very different. Now, there we go. So we're going to stop off first at this biopsychosocial model of, of our pain. So originally, and how a lot of pain is still dealt in my profession of orthopedic physical therapy is this level of biomedical modeling of pain. The biomedical model of pain says you have An irritation, a herniation in your disc, therefore you have low back pain and maybe referred pain down your leg, right? Um, But really, it's interesting. We're going to look at in just a second that not everybody with herniated discs has pain. I actually recently, in 2017, experienced an ankle break with little to no pain, which was absolutely astounding to me. Um, So, our biomedical conditions don't create the whole picture. And we know that you guys, those of us in our our cohort today, we know that because we have an opioid epidemic in our country, we are not handling pain well. Pain is a billion-dollar problem, and it it actually causes a lot of deaths uh, of wonderful people and and a lot of suffering. So now this model is from the 70s, actually, and we're finally, the edges of my care starting to embrace this looking at pain as not just something that's happening at the level of the tissue, biomedical, but also something that arises from our psychology and also something that arises from our social conditions our social structures, our and our belief systems, and this is actually arising not just from us, but from the um, sort of biopsychosocial models of our providers, our care providers. You know, I've noticed that just since I've been using this model as a care provider, I've totally transformed my ability um, to interact and and to talk with people about their pain from where I started in 2007, 2006. So pain really sucks. So what the heck is it there for? You know, I mean, we might think during all of this, like, why do I have pain in the first place? Pain, we have to start to associate, or we can start to look at pain as really a protective mechanism. It offers us protection, protection from what? protection from behaviors, protection from ourselves. At the very best, pain is there. Like if we start to move our hand into a hot fire source, reflect we're reflexively going to pull ourselves away from that nociception or that danger messaging. Um, at its best, it's like a trusty alarm system. And at its worst, it can be like an overly sensitized alarm system. And I'm going to keep using this term over and over again, sensitized, because it's the mo- it's the best word we have right now with what we know is going on neurologically. So it's like this, you know, in my old neighborhood, we would have these like car alarms going off when people would go by with like loud mufflers or exhaust or whatever they would drive by with. And then every, all of us neighbors would go out like, oh, my gosh, that's what uh, pain can start to be like in our nervous system. We're going to look at the mechanism a little bit through which that happens. Pain is really so powerful that it is one of the only things in our life that can actually effectively make changes in our behavior. And I would offer this up for you, like a little reflection of the places in your life where pain, your pain may have protected you. And the places in your life where your pain has allowed for a transformation in your behavior. Like in our class, in my practical strength class, very realistically, Pain a lot of times allows people to start to develop a more mm, like skillful relationship with their movement, with their strength patterns. Um, Pain is an adaptation and it promotes our evolution and our survival. It is wonderful. So really helpful just to consider a time when pain helped you create change and that change helped you to modify your life in a way. So I mentioned this and this can be kind of a sticky part for us because a lot of us, especially me as an orthopedic physical therapist, I had really great teachers who let me know right from the get-go, hey, there's a difference in different types of pain and not all pain is well correlated with anatomical changes. But in my field, you know, we look for anatomical changes and we find them. (laughs) The majority of us walking around have herniated discs, but the majority of us walking around right now do not have low back pain. So herniated discs in and of themselves aren't enough to sort of create that low back pain on their own, or they they don't have to be enough. They They're not necessarily enough. You can see a little disc herniation here. And I'm going to talk about a little bit later why showing this image to you guys, especially if you have a history of low back pain, might be triggering. I had neck pain when I was in graduate school. And I remember going through the orthopedic portion of our neck class. And I was like, my neck was on fire thinking of all the pathologies related to necks and looking at all the images of pathology. So, um, you know, again, just kind of going, if we give a bunch of images like this of herniated discs or spinal issues to physicians, this research has been done a lot, give thousands of images. Docs can't tell based on just the images alone, who will experience pain and loss of function and who won't. This is also mirrored in like the idea of phantom limb pain, which is another really important part of pain education that all of us pain educators talk about. So like in the case of phantom limb pain, an amputee will lose say their limb below the knee, but still be able to feel their leg, right? Still be able to feel their burning and and neurologic issues or, or stuff that they had going on. So this starts to let us know that pain is actually much more complex than just what's happening in the tissue. And part of that complexity is the different types of pain. So I would say acute pain lasting less than three months is pretty straightforward. It's more strongly correlated with biomedical conditions, especially the phases of healing that we see from inflammation through remodeling. Um, It tends to be dependent on movement. And there tends to be more clear identifiers that you can make between the things that aggravate your pain and the things that don't aggravate your pain or alleviate it. Now this differs from chronic or persistent pain, any pain in the body that's lasting greater than three months. This type of pain, the flavor of it is that it's kind of different. It's less strongly correlated with biomedical conditions or phases of healing. It's not necessarily correlated with the phases of tissue healing. And it tends to be less correlated directly with certain movements or like aggravating and alleviating factors. And this is because the longer that we have pain, the more changes we start to experience at the level of the nervous system. And re- just recall that the nervous system is both the periphery, the somatic nervous systems, both the peripheral nerves as well as the central nerve. So everything from sensory and motor nerves, ascending or descending from the spinal cord to the spinal cord to the brain, kind of wild, right? So going back really basically, we have all these different kind of beautiful sense receptors and T.S. little uh, uh, talks about, you know, our ability, our sense receptors like stethoscopes. And I love that analogy, you know? So think about you have this constellation of different sense receptors in your body. These sense receptors are like little um, dinner bells <laughs> that give your nervous system, you know, your brain some ideas about a whole host of different conditions in the body. And we used to classify these sense receptors in this way. That's why I put old school. So interoception, I love that term. It's sort of the interoceptor sense events going on in the body, that exteroceptors respond to stimuli outside of the body. And then the proprioceptors are kind of this sort of special classification. They respond to positional changes. And I think most of us have heard of the term uh, proprioception. But really, sense receptors, those little stethoscopes are a lot more advanced than that. (laughs) So actually, we have like chemoreceptors, which are sensing even the pH in our blood, photoreceptors within our eyes, sensing changes within our visual field. We have thermoreceptors, sensing changes in temperature, so like that example of us putting our hand in, you know, near a warm an open flame. Those are little thermoreceptors ringing a bell when they sense a level of danger, like uh, yielding pain so that we move out of the way. And then the mechanoreceptors are actually the richest, most robust receptors or like stethoscopes in our body. They're sensing everything from changes in our little inner ear, our semicircular canals to changes in joint position to changes in tendon or muscle, or even sometimes pressure um, at the skin. They're really quite robust and exceptional. These are just some examples of our mechanical uh, mechanoreceptors. We actually have much more than this, but so they're sensing everything from stretch of different tissues to vibration to light touch um, to, you know, a sharp touch to um, deformation, so changes in position. So these sense receptors, these little stethoscopes are listening all of the time. So whenever I hear like a a client or a patient say, you know, oh I can't feel that, oh I can't feel that, oh I can't feel where my spine is in space, and I have that too, you guys, all over my body. I always think it's so interesting, isn't it? So much, um, it's so relevant. Relevant, like Allison was saying, for us to start a practice of really becoming mindfully aware, moment to moment, of these sensory cues, of the some of the sensory information. If we consciously paid attention to all of this all the time, it would drive This baddie, right? So you can't pay attention to all of it all the time. But this is going to be this constellation of sense receptors is going to be one of the pathways through which we learn to actually desensitize an oversensitized alarm system. So just gently remember these guys. Um, Much of our ascending sensory information is largely ignored. It has to be, otherwise, we would drive ourselves crazy. But We learn to tune in really, really like um, intently a lot of times to places where we perceive danger. Danger can be on a spectrum from discomfort to searing, hot pain. So wherever we perceive a danger, we're going to prioritize that. And we have evolved, our nervous systems have evolved to be really good at doing this. We are long-term survivors genetically of people who sense danger. That's how we have evolved in this this world as a species. But I'm going to make the argument that only listening to danger messaging is like coming home after work. And instead of putting like, this is Otis right? instead of putting like your favorite records on like Otis Redding, you're putting your least favorite band on all the time. and. Only sensing danger is what I call toxic negativity in the nervous system. We don't want to only sense danger. We want to have a robust sensory field. That's why body scans are so important. Listen to the areas where the pain is coming or where you're uncomfortable, and then draw yourself away from that so that you're not only listening to whatever this boy band is. I'm not a big fan of pop music. You guys don't know that about me yet, but I'm not. (laughs) So again, just a little quick review about the somatic nervous system so that you can see the ascending and the descending portions here in this beautiful picture from the Cleveland Clinic, the ascending portions. So all those little mechanoreceptors, those little sense receptors, they are creating information, which is rising up, being passed through the spinal cord, being received by this part of your brain, which is called the sensory cortex. That sensory cortex has that map on it, which we call the homunculus. We'll look at in a second. And then that sensory cortex helps make plans for the motor cortex. So in the example that I used of the hot fire, that's usually happening down here at the level of the spinal cord, that's not getting way up here. But after we have chronic pain for a period of time, three months or longer, both the sense receptors that give signals to ascend up to the brain, they're changing and modifying and becoming more highly alert. They are paying attention over time. And what that does, is it actually changes the sensory homunculus. This is the sensory homunculus. This is the motor homunculus. So over time, as we are paying attention, like I had a chronic issue in my right hip, over time, my sense receptors in my right hip got really vigilant. And they became like that car alarm going off. And my anytime my mechanoreceptors were stimulated a little, they were like danger, vigilance, more vigilance. And I bet you a dollar, I don't know if this is true, but I bet a dollar that my right hip on my set, my map of my right hip on my sensory cortex grew because of that attention and neuroplasticity and more, more, more all the time. So part of me getting out of chronic pain myself has been practicing these techniques. The adaptations that occur within our sensory system, within our motor system, they don't just happen one way. So it's not just that our um, stethoscopes get more vigilant and more reactive and our spinal cord gets more vigilant and more responsive and our maps in our brain change. It's not just that. It'd be enough if it was that, but it's not that it actually happens descending. It happens in the other direction too. So as the maps change and smudge in our brain, as the stethoscopes grow in their sensitivity, we also change in a descending way because the behavior of the motor neuron, that's the descending branch of the somatic, changes its information too. And this can lead to more muscle tone, increased swelling and edema, changes in the behavior of the tendon, ligament, muscle, skin, that that sensory neuron or motor neuron, that descending neuron, I should say, not sensory, innervates. Isn't that wild? I didn't know this other part, you guys, until about two years ago. So I'm just, this stuff is newer for me too. This is all newer neuroscience. So how do we harness pain? Because this sounds like a bad batch so far. It sounds like all bad so far. Firstly, education. Allison was talking about this at the beginning. I think that the education about pain helps keep people from pain. It helps improve quality of life long-term. When we are uneducated about pain, We wholly differently respond to our physical bodies and physical pain. That's what I've noticed in my um, clients and in my patients that I work with. We learn to set. Assess our threat levels. And I'm going to definitely talk about all these things today. Beginning with our body scan is a beautiful way to start to develop a more holistic uh, referencing of all the sensory cues in your body, like putting on your Otis record, Otis reading records, instead of just putting on the Backstreet Boys all the time. No diss on the Backstreet Boys, if you love them, by the way. Um, We're going to learn to clean up our language around our bodies. This is huge. (laughs) Allison was saying your body's listening all the time. I say that to people every single week. Um, Please don't talk about yourself in a disparaging way, but I also wouldn't even think it um, because it has an impact on your threat level internally. Because again, remember, this isn't just biomedical. This is biomedical, psychological, social. What we say, how we think, how we move, it's all interrelated. And then we're going to talk about like what greater motor graded motor imagery is, because that's really important. And that's fantastic. And we're just going to get into the surface of graded actual movement. So really quickly, this is such a great picture. This is from the NOI. Most of my images in here are from the Neuroorthopedic Institute group. So um, this is talking about like neural sensation. And before an injury, what happens is that usually the little stethoscopes and the counter receptors, usually, they'll ring the bell of danger like right before a tissue fails. So if you're going to tear an ACL or you're going to tear a tendon, then usually you'll get really close to that process. But before it happens, your body will start to go danger, danger. (laughs) And then you'll have pain come on. And hopefully you make a change here, right? There's an opportunity to alter your behavior to save yourself from breaking through this tissue. After an injury, This pain, this protection comes on much sooner in the event. So you only get maybe 20% into the challenge of your tissue before the little alarm bells ring that create pain. The little sensory neurons stimulate nociception, which is danger messaging. And so you have all this time now, all this time to make a different decision. This is a really beautiful way of demonstrating um, sensitization. We eventually want to get this line back closer to this one, right? And then eventually we can grow tissue tolerance, but one thing at a time. It's important to understand in looking at this, that pain usually occurs before tissue damage occurs. And this is a common mantra that I have in the clinic because you have pain or because you have pain with an activity doesn't mean that you are damaging any tissue. That is not, that's the old school biomedical. It also doesn't mean you want to ignore that. We're going to talk about that later. So when sensory neurons become more sensitized, when those stethoscopes start to grow and they they kind of actually literally become much more highly activated, then you have to switch into the mode of desensitization, right? So um, you have to start to gently challenge your, your desensitization and, and your sensitization, excuse me, by allowing for more desensitization. We're gonna look really practically how to do that. And I want you to start to think about pain in terms of either low threat or low danger or high threat, high danger. High threat, high danger is always coincided with discomfort and pain, especially when we talk about chronic conditions. This is an image and a technique used by the Neuro Orthopedic Institute. If you listen to information from other groups, they teach it in other ways. I love this because it's so visual and it's simple. Um, So I like to think of this as a thermostat of danger. Okay. And we're going to look at like, if we have very low threat, if we perceive very low danger in our physical bodies, in our experiences, we are not going to be having a lot of ascending information that is inducing Uh, you're in danger lady, right? This is a good and a bad thing. We want the right amount of this danger stimulation, right? Like when we're actually in danger, we wanna perceive we're in danger. Every day you can get used to starting to notice where you are at on this danger scale and on this threat scale. Um, danger messages can be something like, um, you know, oh, my clients with Parkinson's, it was so interesting. They would get notices from the DMV because they were really terrified of losing their ability to drive, of course, and their independence and autonomy. They would get a notice from the DMV, boom, their danger messaging would go way up, their balance would go way down, their pain would go way up. I had a client who was a CPA, and in tax season, his pain would shoot through the roof. And every tax season, he would go have a film, uh, a radio, uh, an x ray, which would show nothing. He was very, very healthy. Um, but every single tax season, like clockwork, that would happen. Sometimes danger and threat can come from stuff that we perceive to be really enjoyable, like a vacation but that can still enact our danger messaging if we are really concerned about things going well, right? So we have to be thoughtful about what is stimulating threat or danger. Anytime that we you know, can self-assessing your perceived level of threat in a given day is really important and making a choice to reduce your threat levels where you can, because as threat levels, as perceived danger increases sensation, especially nociception, which is kind of, we're going to, I'm going to kind of use that interchangeably with danger messaging, but also pain. Um, It will go up. Muscle tone will go up. Things will go up. Things will be on the alert. So to work with lowering your threat reduction, work on education, start to understand that you are a complex individual with biological as well as psychological social needs. Um, Start to use this idea, if it's helpful, of a -a protectometer. There's a good book by the NOI group on Amazon called Protectometer, and you can buy it. I have a copy. I think it's at work. So in a really helpful way, I have everybody in my class do this at the beginning of every class. We do a little short body scan where we check out our respiration rate. We check out our muscle tone. We feel into our motions. We notice if there's any anxiety or if there's any calm. All of these things are giving you cues about your current level of threat. If your threat is high, you want to Downgrade what you're asking of yourself on that day if you can. You want to try to simplify things if you can. You want to make choices around reducing your threat where you can. This can mean in your physical practice as well. So, again, you know, if we just sit back in our seats where we are right now, you can close your eyes or you can leave your eyes softly open. Just start to notice the rate of your breathing. And See if you can notice your pelvic floor as you're breathing. Let yourself witness your pelvic floor maybe during two or three breath cycles, both on the inhalation as well as on the exhalation. Let yourself start to notice your heart rate if you can. And we know that through our conscious breathing, we can train our heart rate variability, our ability to drop into more parasympathetic functioning. You can notice your muscle tone, notice your sense of focus or agitation, and then just let yourself take in any emotions that might be present. And I always like to look into my hips for my emotion and my throat, That tends to be my emotional spots a lot of times. You also might notice solar plexus, belly, head, shoulders. Let yourself take in the emotional content in your body. Motions are kind of where the physical body and the cognitive sort of connect. So that little check-in at the beginning of every physical practice, every hike, every day is really important to start to get into. Because if you notice that you are breathing fast and you are talking fast and your heart is racing, try to support yourself. Imagine like a child struggling, right? You want to, we struggle too in our adult lives. We want to try to build in maybe recess, maybe build in some time in nature. Part of supporting ourselves, this is probably my favorite thing because this is the actual easiest thing. Every single one of us can do this starting today and it will have profound effects on our life. I actually took out, I had built like four extra slides on this and I actually made myself take them all out just because of our time. So understand that your speed of speech impacts your threat level and others. So the faster you talk, Um, the more that you're sort of agitating and firing up your own nervous system, but also agitating and firing up the nervous systems of people that you're communicating with. So just, you know, take stock of that on a daily basis. You can slow and deepen your speech and that will be monumentally helpful for just starting to ease off of that gas for a little bit. And then as far as using language, use language that more clearly describes a sensation that you're experiencing. So if somebody asks you, you know, how is your right foot doing today? You know, it's really helpful rather if you have foot pain in your right foot rather than saying, Oh, I've got pain, I've got pain, pain's kind of a a big garbage bin, right? Anything can fall into pain. Start to see if you can become more refined in your verbiage of what you're really feeling. Um, My right foot is aching after this activity. I'm experiencing throbbing or I'm experiencing a sense of lightness or I'm experiencing fullness. And this is really helpful for starting to be like mindful and direct and clear with exactly what's going on for you know when you are communicating about your body, whether you are enhancing your safety or your danger and always enhance safety. And I cue patients on this. If you somebody asks you how you're feeling and you need to report some danger messaging, what happens a lot of times is if I ask somebody, how's your right shoulder feeling? Oh, well, you know, in 1972, and I'm not making fun of anybody, but in 1972, you know, I had that hip injury and then I had a consequent spinal injury. And so then it made it difficult and I had to start sleeping on the side. But that's all enhancing and jacking up danger and threat messaging while you're telling the story. So instead, stick with the shoulder. And I think a really helpful way of doing this, like we use this in coaching, we do like, it's like the sandwich cookie of positivity. Let yourself experience something you feel safety with, even if that's just your right pinky finger. My right pinky finger is working great today. My knee is really challenged. I'm feeling a lot of throbbing when I'm descending stairs. Do you know my breath feels full and relaxed today? Try to find in an egalitarian way other parts of the body that you can sense into. This is not positive toxicity. This is practicing midline referencing. I think we actually get into toxic negativity when we talk about our bodies. So these are all uh, sensory um, vocabulary, alert, alive, bloated, blocked, breathless, faint, fluid, flushed, hot, intense, heavy, fuzzy, frozen, frantic, electric, dynamic. You know, think of how many terms you can use to actually describe what you're feeling and then pick the ones that are the most appropriate for you. The more that we can increase the present moment awareness, the more we realize that our neutral sensations are actually extremely positive. You know, Alison talking about, you know, um, controlled burns. I mean, I remember, you know, being up in Marin during, you know, wildfire, uh, in Sonoma and going outside and not being able to take a deep breath and the air just being so full of smoke and danger. And, uh, that's a whole different feeling. So all of us sitting right now that can take a full breath and clean air, That's like a huge safety message. Um, So notice that I'm going to skip our story, but I have a really good story uh, around sensory experience if I have time later. Um, So try out new phrases, you know, like when I hear people say, I can't access this or that, that always kind of, it troubles me. I think it's much more respectful to say, like, I can't, feel this yet, or I'm working on this. Um, Instead of like my doctor says I'm bone on bone, which is my least favorite term. It actually doesn't even exist. I would challenge any orthopedic that is here in this lecture. You know, it's not good verbiage. You're enhancing danger messaging when we're saying that to our clients. It's just not how arthritis is graded. Instead, we should say, you know, I have arthritis, but I'm learning how to change the cycle of my arthritis. Instead of my back went out on me, um, I'm learning skills to protect my back when I move so that I don't continue to irritate an instability or whatever it is so that we're starting to create more clarity and always we're starting to pull the locus of control back to us. When people are in chronic pain and I hear them say, I have to go see this person and they have to set me right, that is a huge red flag for me as a provider that this person has been coached in a way, possibly by somebody in my profession that has made them think that their control towards health is outside of themselves, that worries me. And it's actually never biologically true, just just to let you know. I've never in my life, in my my whole life, uh, ever seen that or experienced that. So bias your messages towards safety and independence, autonomy. Train awareness of function rather than sensation. So instead of getting really caught up in sensation, like if you can go out for a five minute walk, let that be your awareness. How are you doing today? I'm able to walk five minutes. That's a huge safety message. I'm still having difficulty with raising my arm overhead, but as long as I'm breathing, I know I'm. things are more right than wrong. You can be sore, but safe. You can be sore and healing. You can be learning to be independent in your body's care. If something's muscle soreness versus pain, call it muscle soreness, right? Now we start to get into this really interesting place. Like, so say you're cleaning up your language and and, and that's challenging and you're starting to refine that because that starts to have effects on our belief system and our psychology when we stop communicating about ourselves in certain ways. And then layer this on top. And I swear, I swear this is so helpful. So um, I'm going to talk about, these are all four examples. We're not going to get into mirror box training. It's really interesting, but we're not going to do it. We're just going to talk briefly about right and left discrimination, imagined movement, and then obviously progressing physical, actual physical movement. So um In looking at right and left discrimination, there's a lot of apps on this, but when those maps in our brain get smudged, like I talked about, after we have pain for a long period of time, we actually lose the ability to discriminate whether something is happening on the right side of the body or the left side of the body. And to start to desensitize the brain and to start to clarify those maps, a really helpful tool is every day to practice identifying a right side or a left side. Um, there's apps you can get which help you to do this. There's one from the NOI group called Recognize with an S because they're Australian. Um, I don't think I put that on my references but we can put that up as a resource. It's a really helpful tool. And so like in looking at this image, sorry, this image is a, it's from a, a book. So it's a little bit buzzy, um, um, fuzzy, fuzzy. <laughs> but is this person turning her head to the right or left? Can I identify? Is this the right or left hand? Is this person's back rotated to the right or left? Is this the right or left foot? So that you're starting to pick out and pit, be able to picture and identify. Um, so right and left discrimination is really helpful. Also extremely helpful is imagining movement, imagining yourself movement, uh, yourself moving. And again, I just learned this about a year ago. When we imagine ourselves moving, we these are all parts of the brain we use all the parts this is all fancy parts of the brain that we use for movement we use all the parts of the brain for movement with the exception of one part in our sensory motor cortex can you believe that now when i was a gymnast back in the uh, 100 years ago my coaches knew this and when we were in a competition season as we got closer and closer All we would do for the last part of workout, we wouldn't be training harder. We would be training less physically, and we would be doing guided imagery, imagining ourselves doing our routines perfectly. And I'm so type A, I always would have to envision myself on the winner's podium because I was so obsessed with winning. So, you know, see yourself doing something that's actually changing those maps in your brain. It's actually reducing the sensitized component of the nervous system. Both ascending, central, as well as descending. Isn't that wild? Look at how the left-right discrimination also helps. So does observing movement. Observing others move is just not as impactful as actually imagining yourself doing it. So when we observe movement, we wanna start with the most simple movement. Like I said before, you know, even just looking at an MRI with a disc herniation can start to aggravate and create danger messages. Seeing somebody do this movement, especially say if you got injured, doing a movement like this can be aggravating for your sensory system our dog doing this move, like it irritates me because I know this is like probably hurting her back. You know, this is like sensitizing to me. So we need to observe movement that is like first gentle. Like this is a pretty gentle one and you can practice right or left discrimination. Seeing things that are involved in injury is more challenging for us. Right. But I think being able to observe all kinds of movement eventually is really important. So when we think about Progression, we can go back to a neutral one, just in case anyone's having any flare-ups. If we think about progression, start with gentle and gently get more difficult. Pain requires context, right? So this is a much more easy context. This is a much more challenging contextual cue of having a cast. This is kind of an easy context, unless you hate coffee and work. Then it's a challenging context, (laughs) <laughs> I love all these things. So this is like, oh, very soothing for me. But for somebody else's nervous system who hates glasses and coffee, this might be horrendous. This could be a challenging contextual situation because this looks like a medical intervention to me, especially if you have a history of a rotator cuff injury and somebody's put their hands on you in this way. Pain is really contextually important and people who get injured like on playing fields feel less pain than people who get injured in danger, dangerous situations like, say, scary mugging. You know, Even if the hits and all the physical damage is the same, the pain is going to be greater because context is really important for how we perceive threat and how we perceive danger. So when you're imagining yourself moving, again, this is something I teach in my classes. I encourage everybody to do this. Imagine yourself doing like the simple thing first. If you take a body scan and your threat levels high, make yourself give yourself something so gentle. Like you're going to see yourself gently floating in a peaceful pond, or if that's too much, you know maybe you see yourself sitting on the beach. Involve as many sensory cues as possible what things look like, how things taste, what things feel like. This is really, you know, make it as contextually um, uh, valuable for yourself as possible. Make it as real for your brain as possible. I was doing this with a group of clinicians and, you know, I kind of set the, the parameters for everybody and we were doing a gentle walk on the beach and I was queuing. what's the sun like? What are the birds like? Can you hear the ocean? And somebody said, oh my gosh, there's a bird. And it was coming at her. And I'm like, no, no, get yourself out of that situation. Like, don't put yourself with a danger bird, you know, only positive, low threat, low danger situations eventually challenge your threat level. Like I wanna be surfing in more dangerous environments than I can right now. So when I'm doing my guided visualization, I am seeing myself paddling out, taking waves on the head, going under. I'm seeing myself doing all the things when I'm on a low threat day that I want my body to be able to do. Okay, so think about what you wanna do. Think about where you wanna desensitize and gently chart a course for that. The interesting thing about all this pain stuff is, this is all on you, and you have total control over that stuff. As far as actual movement goes, you know, think about, recall that sort of two those those twin peaks. Recall that actual pain is going to come on before before the actual tissue damage. So you know, you can feel a little bit of pain, and like Allison was saying. Be respectful, you know, don't push through it. Don't avoid it. It's going to be present, especially if it's been there with you for a long period of time, three months or longer. Stay safe. I think it's unrealistic to expect that you have no sensation. It's also unrealistic to expect that you're going to heal yourself by pushing directly into things. Um, You can do this with a physical therapist. If you have a trustworthy person to go over this with, use tools to engage with the body scan, understand your threat level change your language, use your imagery, This is a really helpful tool. I use this a lot in the clinic of like, this orange is kind of the onset of pain. And when we start doing active movements, our active movements might take us into pain. But again, don't necessarily mean that we're damaging tissue. It's that we're stimulating that that threat and that the brain and the nervous system are creating, girl, you're in danger. And so you gotta go slowly. I always say pain is like a yellow light. It's not like a red light. But we also don't wanna be like, flooring at a hundred miles an hour into our pain. We don't wanna not touch into the pain, but we don't wanna go really deep into it either. We just wanna touch it and back off, touch it and back off, touch it and back off. So I love this example of a movement progression. This is the last thing, because some people might be going like, what the heck is progressed movement? Progressed movement is what we talked about at the beginning of this lecture today, starting simply and then getting more and more complex, right? For me, like seeing myself paddling out in a small break or actually doing it and then gently going out and maybe riding a few waves, right? Gently going out and going to tougher spots, you know, tougher conditions. With respect to something like running, it's such an easy um, progression that I wanted to talk about it. First, you can assess, are you strong enough? Do you have the prerequisite strengths and mobility for walking? If that's a go, then start your walking program. While you're starting a progressive walking program, you can be building strength and mobility for running. That's a different strength and mobility. To do that, you'll have to initiate a program that involves a flight phase, hopping. Your muscles will have to be strong enough to support you in flight. Recall that running is like a single leg flight, okay? So you have to be so strong to be able to do it. And in your hopping, you'll progress from double leg to single leg, like we talked about. Initiate then a walk jog program, right? Say your walking's going well, your hopping's going well, your strength training's going well. Great, I'm going to keep gently going. And then you start walking, right? Or maybe just one minute jog, five minutes walks, so gradually progressing that, slowly building up over time. Over time, not only will the tissues adapt in your muscles, tendons, ligaments, joints, cartilage, bone, heart, blood vessels, you name it, also your nervous system will become desensitized. Somebody was saying today in class, one of the things that had been most helpful for her was initiating a cardio program and she credited it to being strengthening. We all know cardiovascular work isn't strength training. What I think the help was, was actually this. I think it was a neurologic uh, desensitization for that person. Hallelujah, that's what we're trying to get to. So in summary, pain arises, and it's wonderful because it protects us. It's wonderful and horrible, but it protects us. It's a biopsychosocial event when it happens, even when it's acute, but especially when it's post acute, when it's chronic, long lasting longer than 3 months. It's present to help us create changes in our behavior. Uh it's not highly correlated with our biomedical conditions. Um and begin regular body scans. You guys, I can't say this enough. I'm sure Allison agrees with me. I'd love to hear her take on this, but nobody in the west is sensing their body enough and sensing with a you know openness and and in a way that's not hierarchical so get to know your threat levels get to know your tells in your body your body will tell you and you could be like a good csi detective where you know like oh girl there's your jaws getting tight and building up that muscle again that's a sign threat levels getting high for me i can't feel my breath and i can't feel my pelvic floor it's a sign transform your language you guys start today start noticing messy language around your body fatalistic language and start gently changing it and then play around with imagining yourself graded motor imagery is like a great joy of my life i learned it as a young athlete and i absolutely adore it i've done it my whole life it's super helpful um i used to do it when i was in graduate school like seeing myself graduating <laughs> and uh that's about it these are the resources i'm going to go ahead and stop our share i know that's a lot
0: Amazing. Um, I'm going to first ask, I have, I definitely have a few things I will tag on and, and use to link um, the presentation with our movement practice. Any questions before we get to that?
2: <laughs> I have, I have yeah. a question just about speech. So is speed of speech always related to danger then? I mean, I work with people who speak English as a second language also, and I tell them other things about it that I think people think they're not confident when they're speaking quickly, or it's a bias maybe in this country, I'm not sure. So I was wondering what else you know about speed of speech and pain and the body.
1: Speed of speech to me is connected with sympathetic neural outflow. And so the more sympathetic neural outflow you have going on, the higher your threat level is gonna be. It's just peanut butter and jelly, goes together. So if you want to have greater impact in your speech and on your nervous system and the nervous system of the people that are listening to you, slow your speech down, take your voice down an octave and go slower. Like even just me saying that like that is different, has different effects on you guys. I've tried to go very fast when I'm talking in these sessions, which is hard for me because I want to get all the info out. Um, But generally I talk slowly unless I'm making a joke. So speak slowly, it's helpful unless you've got to get a bunch of stuff out quickly. The best doctors convey information slowly. Yeah, and
2: I find too that when I've been in those chronic states and trying to explain what's going on, my doctors can't even follow me. So I've really learned to just try to slow it down.
1: It's TMI, it's TMI. Because when we're giving a subjective, it's exactly what I I mentioned a subjective a couple of times. Like when I'm listening to subjective reports with patients, not with clients, but with patients, 90% of it will be fluff. 3% of it will be necessary. 7% will be maybe ancillary information, maybe helpful, maybe not. Instead, let your provider guide you. Let them take the reins and you chill. That's a time to chill. I can say that as a provider, if any other providers are on here, you can weigh in on that, but thank you.
0: Yeah, and what I'll say too is um, we do a lot in the, the school with sympathetic, parasympathetic, polyvagal theory. And um, one of the things I'll point out too is our culture values speed. So a lot, practice done well, traditionally, historically is always radical, rebellious, and countercultural, And we see that with some of the slowing down that we do. But, but I, you know, we'll also see more and more, a lot of the chronic health challenges we are facing. Some of the public health challenges that we're facing have to do with this cultural value of speed and just pushing, pushing, pushing. It's the burnout. It's the, um, you know, you'll, you'll see more and more, like, I think of like Gabor Mate's work, Peter Levine's work with trauma in that, like, we have just cranked up not just our own bodies but um put this cultural value on speed and it's literally making us sick um and i think that's something to keep in mind too because i know there have been times where and i'm not talking about cultural speed with speaking quickly i'm talking about this much bigger broader um value of more is better, go, 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 do, 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 that type of thing, right? More than an actual like um, regional um, speed of speech, right? I want to be very clear on that because this is something that I see is a much bigger issue than, hey, I come from the East Coast and we speak fast or we speak slower in the South. This is a value that we have in our modern culture. And I think it's very important to address because for example, sometimes I see students in classes not want to go slow with movement simply because that speed is such a predominant experience. And even they're like, I'm here to get something done. And it's like, great. And that's more of the same. And healing is not going to come from more of the same. And it's not going to reset your nervous system. And it's not going to actually create the um, you know, biochemical cascade that's going to promote healing, largely through what's happening with your nervous system. Um, And kind of an example of this is actually at the beginning of COVID, when we went online, one of the things I did was, and we still do this every class, is we do some type of check-in. And it gives me as a teacher a way to assess, how is this person speaking? What language are they using? What's going on with the body? Like there, there's tons of analysis happening in whatever the student says, right? Good, bad, ugly. Um, and what I saw too during COVID was, the, especially at beginning stages, the threat level was so high, everyone was having all kinds of weird pain. Like, and it's like pinging around the body, right? And it's coming from like the the, again, that sympathetic activation, all the neurochemistry that goes along with that. And so our practice was like, lay on the ground, roll around basically, and, and tons of deep breathing, because that was the only way to start calibrating the nervous system. Otherwise it was just like the, the inflammation and activation was going to create more and more pain, more and more sensitization and and eventually some type of injury whatever that was. Right. Um, so there's a lot that's happening with skilled movement practitioners behind the scenes that, um, it's speaking to the nervous system and to the body and, but it will require us to do things differently than what you might see in like an, a a typical yoga class or typical exercise class, because again, the the intention's different. Does that make sense? And I think that's one of the things I've become very concerned about with modern yoga is it's more go, 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 do, do, do loud music. And um, in my experience, you may get some type of like, kind of like a running high from it, but in terms of like sustainable body awareness and and the type of healing I think we all need, it won't happen in that environment because we're just doing more of the same. Does this make sense?
1: Yeah. Um, Trina, do you have anything to add here? Beautiful, Alison. Couldn't agree more. I'm really trying to mirror exactly what you're talking about exactly what you're talking about. That's what I'm trying to hold space for in our classes, blending strength dynamics and biomechanics, like the science of the strength and biomechanics with the nervous system Mm de-escalation. I asked an acupuncturist once, I said, is there any point that every person gets? And he's like, yeah, they get that point in the center in the West because every single, that's like the point for like basal vagal. (laughs) <laughs> and he's like because every single person that comes in is going a million miles a minute yeah I took couldn't agree more that's all I want to say good love it can I
2: can I ask one more question um about the edema in the role of was it in healing or in the role of when you're not when you're sensing too much danger I thought I thought edema was in there as one of the um
1: Yeah, it was. Um, I talked about it in this workshop. I've talked about. I love the topic of edema, and I talk about it all the time. Um, Edema, the job of edema, the job of swelling. Edema is just a fancy term for swelling. The role of swelling is to stop movement. It's to create uh, puffiness at the joint to cease movement. Right. So when threat levels are escalated and sensitized nervous system is getting more and more highly sensitized, I showed there's an ascending way in which the sensory, sense receptors are modified. The spinal cord is modified. The brain is modified. Descending, the brain is modified. The spinal cord is modified. The motor neurons are modified. And the way that the neurons that communicate with the tissues of the ligaments, the muscle from the brain going down can create changes in cell behavior, in cell structure, in the presence of edema, the presence of swelling. They can create inflammation. I didn't know this. This is absolutely true. If you have chronic pain, that in and of itself can create inflammation and swelling. Totally amazing. Doesn't require the biomedical injury. Mm -hmm. One of my friends was just telling me the other day, she was like, when I do this, and I know she has some chronic pain patterns, when I do this, I feel inflammation. And I was like, but we can't tell. I don't think it's from the movement alone because the movement was at a level one. And she was arguing that she was safe to do a level seven movement. And I was saying, heck no, heck no. That inflammation, I bet a dollar is related. Sorry, I keep betting dollars is related to the chronic pain and the overstimulation of that sensory of that motor system. Isn't that wild? Changes the cell structure, makes more fat, infiltrate muscle and tendon, loss of bone, loss of bone laying down, like we talked about, right? Changes at all those levels happen from hypersensitized pain. Mm -hmm. Wild. Yeah. So
0: good. Um, I'll chime in with something that came up too. You know, I love that graph of like the, that where we kind of like pain will cross into the movement and the activity and something that's considered like a crown jewel across all the spiritual traditions but I think it's it's also something worthwhile to talk about in movement practices is discernment and being able to really sort and sift through what's happening at any given moment. And um again the only way to do discernment is to go slow. And to stay awake and aware. And again, we we come back to this patch um, twenty two of needing to go upstream against the grain of the cultural emphasis on speed and exercise and getting it done and making it happen. And I don't want to do phase one and two and three and four and five. I want to be at phase eight, and I think I should be. So I. Don't want to slow down, even if this stuff may be good and maybe help the label eight, level eight, right? It's like, you know, and and just watching these tendencies inside of ourselves um, because they don't give us a lot of benefit in the long run. And, you know, when I've learned new things over the past few years, like I learned to snowboard a couple of years ago, very humbling as all things when you're learning lots of falls. But I loved the joy of of kind of going through that that process of being humbled by new movement and getting to like rediscover my body in certain ways, um, and that again, it it just requires like a softness and a receptivity, what the Buddhist will call like the beginner's mind. Um, so as we do our practice tonight, it's slow. It's on the ground. It's encouraging you to slow down. It is about um calibrating the nervous system for sensitivity. Towards the end, you will see poses that showed up in the other two practices. And this again, this topic kind of comes at the end because it's to a certain degree less yes, I want that than the other ones. Um and the practice is the same way. It's the practice we need, but we don't necessarily want, right? It's that foundational awareness, um, building nervous system balancing that allows for more skill and sensitivity and alignment and awareness in the more demanding physical practices. I would recommend a blanket could be a blanket, could be a towel, anything of that nature on your mat. Um, You could also do this practice on carpet or a rug or the floor. Um, A lot of the work we're going to do comes from T.S. Little and his uh, satya system, which is a combination of yoga asana movements, Feldenkrais, Thomas Hanna, somatics. It's a different animal in terms of movement, but it's really rich. So take a moment to set up. I'm gonna pause our recordings. Um, Yeah, Scotty, actually, if you missed the last two yoga movements, you're actually in the perfect position. This would be the best one to do first and then
2: go play with the other ones.